This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. made a wrong decision. Uh, I've heard stories on both sides of the Brexit discussion. Um, yeah, I really thought it would be great and autonomy and freedom and, well, time's gone on and we think maybe not. Maybe that was a mistake. Or maybe, wow, this has been awesome. I really should have voted for Brexit. <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I didn't vote, so I've got no horse in the race. As a personal example of that, I'd grown up as a kiddie in the 80s uh, in South Africa, as my accent might give away. And uh, we grew up, before Mr. Mandela was the great man that we know him to be today, I grew up knowing Mr. Mandela as a legitimately incarcerated terrorist. (gasps) I hear you say, yeah. Okay? That's how we grew up. And it, <laughs> it took a significant moment in my life for things to shift. Um, in 1990, when, when Mr. Mandela was released from prison, uh, I was 10 years old. And I remember very vividly that he held his first political gathering right outside where I was living at the time. And I, I stood there. Well, I was lying on the ground with a, rif- with a toy rifle. Okay, sniping at him, pretending to be saving my country. Okay. Now, in 1994, when he became president, as God would have it, the very first state visit that he made outside of South Africa was to the Middle East, was to Bahrain, where I happened to be living at the time. My, my dad was the ambassador at the South African embassy there. And so we got some one-on-one time with him. And that was a significant moment, as you can imagine. Um, I was properly conflicted. Okay, Here's the what I knew to be ex-terrorist, uh, now president, and everything in my teenage angst and resentment was going... But... I not only found it hard to fault the man when I met him personally, I truly felt grandfathered by him through our interactions. And I read somewhere, someone say something like this. Okay, sorry for the vagueness. (laughs) Great men make you feel like they can change the world. Really great men make you feel like you can change the world. And that was what it was like being with Mr. Mandela. And it's made a a profound impact on me, uh, even to this day, where I want to emulate that part of his life and his leadership. You know, talk about having your mind changed, right? 
And I tell you this story not because I'm proud of it. I tell you because I'm ashamed of it. You know, most people swallow their tongue when you say anything bad about Mr. Mandela. But it highlights so many of the weaknesses of the human condition, of the human heart. And it does, even in our shame, offer an opportunity to celebrate the goodness of God that changes hearts. And as we continue our series, we're going to look at a probably the pivotal change of mind and change of heart that happened in an individual that has changed the course of history. The moment when a most zealous enemy of the church and of Jesus becomes the most zealous apostle for Jesus and his church. And we are, of course, speaking about the Radical mind change that happens at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. So our main reading is in Acts 9. But because Saul's conversion is such a a pivotal moment, actually in the book of Acts it's recorded three times. Once by by the words of Luke, and then twice in the words of uh, Saul Paul himself. And we're going to use a little bit of Acts 22 and 26 just to fill in where Acts 9 doesn't give the full detail. And it's probably worth saying at this point, I'm going to be talking about Saul, right? Because he, he's named Saul in the passage. He's Saul all the way through until about Acts 13. And it, he only becomes Paul when he goes to the Gentiles. Saul and Paul, same name. Saul, Hebrew. Paul, Greek. So when Paul goes to the Greek-speaking nations, he goes as Paul. And he's from then on known as Paul, which I I think is a great apologetic tool as well, just when you think how we relate to people. Maybe you have a Greek name. So here we go, conversion of Saul, chapter 9, verse 1. It would probably be best if you're up here with me because we're going to be jumping a little bit. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, Paul says, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way, which is the name that they called uh, being Jesus followers, being Christians at this point, it was called the way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And when, he had all, when they had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. 
Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to anoint you, sorry, appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The men who were traveling with me stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. He was blind in that moment. And they brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, which is still there in Damascus today. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go! For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. Ah, God, do us good this morning as we dig into this passage. Remind us of our own salvation if we... Our believers this morning, help us on in our journeys if we're exploring Jesus this morning. We're so grateful that by your Spirit, you lead us by the hand, by the heart, and that we can trust you with our very lives, Lord. Amen. 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 So, uh, I've decided to break our passage down into four progressive headings um, that I pray will do us good as we look at the Apostle uh, Paul, Saul's life and his process, and I hope that it'll help us in our own journeys, wherever we find ourselves this morning, to lean into the goodness and the grace of Jesus. So first up is contact, okay? We're going with C's. There's a hard one to find, C, contact. Saul was one of the most significant religious leaders of his day. He'd studied under one of the greatest teachers of their time, Gamaliel, who, um, I've heard this wonderful phrase, Gamaliel firmly nailed his colors to the fence in uh, Acts chapter 5. And Paul was zealous, he was ambitious, he was ruthless. And he saw this as an opportunity to rise to the top of the top. 
He'd gone to the Sanhedrin and to the chief priests to ask for permission to go and squash this young movement of Jesus followers, this way. And his permissions included persecution of the believers in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, which is ironic because that is where Paul ends up going in following Jesus. And after the stoning of Stephen, the believers began to scatter from Jerusalem and Judea outward. And Saul and his entourage, they're, uh, pers- they're, they're pursuing them towards Damascus, the capital of Samaria, when this contact happens. This light straight from heaven, brighter than the midday Middle Eastern sun, which I can tell you from experience is particularly brutal. And it shines on the whole party. All of them, they, including Saul, they can't help but fall to the floor. And are they trying to... Yeah, have you ever been in such a bright room that not even covering your eyes keeps the brightness out? I think that's what's going on here. And a voice from heaven speaks to Saul. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul's response, I think, is quite telling because I think he, he seems to immediately know that this is the voice of God. Lord, Saul replies, possibly still thinking at this point, hey, I'm doing what I'm doing for you. Why are you asking me these strange questions? You can just imagine the moment of mental and emotional conflict when the voice of God replies back, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And this light that Saul sees clearly must remind him of the glory of the Lord that passes before Moses, that the Lord had to protect him as well. And even the shining, the glory on Moses' face, this was clearly contact with God, the God of the Old Testament, the God that he knew. But he calls himself Jesus, whom Saul had made his sole mission to destroy. The God that Saul knows has appeared and spoken to him, but it was Jesus. And I think, wonderfully, there are many people today who aren't yet following Jesus, who find themselves at this point in their lives where God has spoken to them. He has revealed himself to them. He is calling them, and they're asking Who are you, Lord? And this is such an important part of Saul's story, such an important part of our story. And if you're maybe at that point this morning, don't stop. Don't let liberal culture speak louder than this invitation. Don't let unbelieving friends or family drown out his voice. Don't let previous bad church experiences or bad experiences with Christians become an insurmountable hurdle to you. Allow Saul's response to be an example. Who are you, Lord? And then allow God to draw us into the next phase of the process, conviction. 
the next C. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I think one of the greatest challenges to growth, either character growth, mental growth, emotional growth, and certainly spiritual growth, is that our culture is screaming from every corner at every opportunity, hey, you're perfect the way you are. Don't change for anybody. Be true to yourself above all else. Now, although those are half-truths, they make really bad ultimate truths. And we've got an entire culture committed to half-truths. And they are blind, and they are unable to see the ultimate truths. And I don't think it's an accident that Saul is blind for three days as he was working out the difference between half-truths and ultimate truths. Saul is told by Jesus that his persecution of the church, the persecution of Jesus' people, was the persecution of Jesus himself. Now, I don't think many of us will have the problem where we think, yeah, this is me. I'm a, I'm a persecutor of the church. Certainly all of us can do more to love and bless the family in the church. And we're probably, uh, but we're probably not actively persecuting her, are we? But we also read Jesus say, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. Funny phrase. A goad is a prod, okay? If you th- a cattle goad, for example, is a sharp stick that you, pro- you prod cattle with to keep them moving forward in the direction you want them to go. So Saul's goads are the mo- moment that God has been speaking to him, revealing himself to him, causing self-doubt in Saul, And his current course of action. Kicking against the goads, therefore, are these kind of pricking moments of Saul's conscience such that he begins to sense that he is wrong in what he believes. Wrong about Jesus and wrong to persecute the church. So what are some of the goads in Saul's life? I think, firstly, there is very little chance that Saul, who's the star pupil of Gamaliel, a Pharisee of Pharisees, he says of himself, hadn't somehow been following the rise of Jesus from the very beginning. He must have heard stories retold about every parable that Jesus told, every miracle that Jesus did, every teaching that Jesus ever said, and then discussed it with his fellow Jewish leaders. And as a learned man, he would have known that these things aren't all lies. Some of them are in the Old Testament, and they're prophesied about the coming Messiah. And that the Messiah would have to come and suffer and die at the hands of sinful men for his own people. 
so that they could be set free. Now, he would have known this about the Messiah. He just couldn't bring himself to believe that this carpenter from Nazareth could be the one, the Messiah. Second thing, I think Saul, no doubt, saw the rise of the early church. This is a couple of years after the death of Jesus. And how the early church had cared for one another, loved one another. And they were living out the laws of grace, the laws of God even, in a more beautiful, fundamental way than the Jewish culture around them was. That would have goaded him. Saul, no doubt, sat in and heard Stephen's defense during his trial. Two Sundays ago, we spoke about the stoning of Stephen. And Saul would have been there. And he would have heard the way that Stephen brilliantly, compellingly argued from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. Saul would have seen the glow that we read about on Stephen's face as it shone like Moses's, because he has been and was in the presence of God himself. How was that possible? How would Stephen's face shine if he was wrong? What a goad there. Saul was the senior leader at the moment where Stephen is stoned to death. And we know that because the stoners bring their cloaks before before Saul's feet. Saul was too high and mighty to cast a stone himself. The others did it on his behalf. And he saw the incredible way in which Stephen died. He heard the incredible words that Stephen uttered as he was dying. He heard not only Stephen declaring Jesus to be Lord, but also asking forgiveness for the ones who are stoning him. Saul heard Stephen pray for his forgiveness. That's a goad. And the final goad, and probably most applicable to us, is the goad of the awareness of Saul's own sin. Saul was a Pharisee. He gave his whole life to living by the letter of the law, every day of his life. And not only the 12 commandments, but the 600 plus other ceremonial, civil, and moral laws. They had to live every one of them out. And there's no doubt that Saul was incredibly aware, internally, of his inability to to live right before God. He was aware that he was breaking the laws regularly, probably every day. The same laws that he tried to live by was making it harder and harder for him to live like that. And it was getting harder. He was get, his heart was getting harder and not softer towards God. He was aware, like all of us, of his sin before a holy God. And the question is, what happens when you slowly become aware of your sin, of your rebellion against God, but you're powerless to do anything about it. Well, you probably do what, Stephen, uh, what uh, Saul does, which is overcompensate. <laughs> overcompensate in other areas. 
He not only tries to live more holy in his life, he goes way beyond the point that any Jew is expected to go in his pursuit of the way of the followers of Jesus. And he even goes to go and he asks proactively for permission to persecute them. That's overcompensation. That's a sign of the goads, if I ever saw one. And I wonder, in what areas of your life are you currently experiencing the goading, the goads of God? And this is applicable whether you're making your way towards Jesus, exploring Him, or whether you are a follower of Jesus. One of the activities that the Holy Spirit works in us is to bring conviction, conviction of sin, so that increasingly every area of our life is brought under the Lordship of Jesus. Every day is a day of repentance and faith, and repentance and faith. It's not the ABCs of salvation, it's the A to Zs of life. Areas like our sexual purity. As we give ourselves to our husbands or our wives if we're married. Or to Jesus if we're still single. Rather than to the internet or to others that we're not married to. Areas like our wise and our godly orientated stewardship of finances and time. And our talents and our skills. Because, make no mistake, we can sin with our abuse of those things. Of our time and our treasures and our talents. And even our temperaments. Our attitudes. We can sin with them. And God will be goading us forward. Wooing us. Willing us forward to know that there is grace and forgiveness He'll be willing us toward a Christ-like expression of these areas in every area of our lives through this conviction. And how do you tell the goad of God? It's that internal moment where you can, ugh, you know that wince? Ugh, just sort of kicks you. It's like when you eat something sour. It's just that internal sense. It's that kind of moment of twinge. When you know you're just busy with something that you shouldn't be busy with. It's that internal compulsion to do something godly that you wouldn't normally consider doing. Those are the goads of God. It's that moment when you read something in Scripture or you hear the Holy Spirit speak something. Hear the, a phrase in a song that we've just sung or you heard on the on the hi-fi. Hear a believing friend say something that just, oh, that just twinges. You get a sense from God when you're praying, you're out for a walk. That moment when you're convicted, when you're cut to the heart, sometimes it's really stark. Whoa. It brings emotions to the fore. And you realize Oh, I've sinned against God and I need His help to move me forward. But I have a caution here. 
Because there are many, many people in this nation, in the nations across the world, no doubt sitting here this morning, that think because you've had contact with God and you've had a conviction from God, that's you're a Christian. This is the difference between being a cultural churchgoer and being a follower of Jesus. You are not a Christian unless, like Saul, you've gotten up after contact and conviction and done what Jesus asked and walks. He, he gets up and he walks to Damascus and there expresses the fruits of conversion life. And if this is you, I want to say, keep walking. Hear my caution, hear the caution of Scripture, and keep walking towards Jesus, towards conversion. Point three. Conversion literally means change. Change from one thing to another thing. We convert. Boom. I was that, now I am this. And in Saul's case, there's not much that we can read about what he said in response to the conviction of his sin. But we can see he's so distraught that he gets up and he does what Jesus asks. Which is to go to Damascus and begin the journey of following Jesus wherever it leads him. Remarkably, he adds fasting and doubtlessly prayer to his response. Prayer and fasting, such a key part of our followership of Jesus. And we can only guess, okay? But I suspect Paul immediately experienced a a new closeness with Jesus, with God, because of his interaction and, and contact with Jesus. And that this fasting and prayer for three days would have included asking for forgiveness, repentance, an acknowledgement of his sin and his pride before God. As well as asking for new power to fulfill the ministry that Jesus was calling him to. And prayers of worship, thankfulness for the kindness that he'd experienced through Jesus. The mighty and proud Saul of Tarsus had set out for Damascus with the intention to imprison and break the followers of Jesus. And he enters Damascus, a blind and broken man himself, helplessly led by the hand of others, a literal prisoner at the mercy of God and the people that he would have killed just three days ago. There's a a commentary on Acts, I forget which one. It said this, The very same mouth that had been breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus was now breathing out praises and prayers to God. The raging lion has been changed into a bleating lamb. Love it. Love it. And apart from prayer and fasting, another fruit of conversion we see in Saul is surrender and obedience He doesn't just hear what Jesus has said. Oh, how often we do that. We hear what Jesus says. Yes, Lord, I hear you. He does what Jesus says. 
He gets up and he goes to Damascus and he humbles himself before Ananias, a disciple of Jesus, who had probably been part of that gang who had possibly had to flee. People like Saul. And Saul had seen this name, this image of Ananias coming to him, this follower of Jesus. And as Jesus had told him in the vision or in the prayers, so Ananias comes and he lays hands on him. Saul's conversion not only means he does what Jesus asks of him, but he humbles himself before the people of Jesus, the community. This former mortal enemy of Saul's, Ananias, this follower of Jesus, is then invited to lay hands on him and pray for him. And in, I think, one of the most beautiful phrases in this passage, calls him Brother Saul. You can just imagine how that might have stung in the mouth of Ananias. But he understood the heart of Jesus and that people change. Brother Saul. This truly is a sign of a broken man who's now seen the truth of Jesus in person and surrenders it all. And we can already see this sense of zeal that Paul had, Saul had, the zealousness and this diligence to persecute the people of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. We now see echoes of that in his response as he surrenders and his heart, his life, everything is converted, is changed from what it was in this new life with Jesus. And in surrender to Jesus and his church, we see Saul's eyes are immediately healed, scales fall off, and at the same time, God fills Saul with the Holy Spirit, which is a sign that he'd been a follower, that he is now a follower of Jesus. And he, does, he then does what Jesus had told every convert, every disciple of his to do, which is to be baptized in water as the visible sign of this surrendered life, this converted life. There's no one in the entire New Testament that becomes a follower of Jesus other than the thief maybe on the cross who wasn't filled with the Spirit and baptized in water. just wasn't. It's a sign of surrender, the death of our old lives and receiving the new power and identity of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And if you consider yourself a believer and you've not yet been baptized or you've not yet been prayed for to receive the fullness of the Spirit or an ongoing fullness of the Spirit, I would strongly urge you, along with Scripture, that Jesus has so much more for you through His process of obediently following Him in this way. The conversion of Saul... It's obviously a unique event, right? We don't expect everybody's conversion story to be like this. And it should not be used as the expected model. But Saul's response to this event definitely offers us an example to follow. Sitting on the fence type of faith like Gamaliel, Saul's, uh, Saul's teacher, is useless. 
we never hear about Gamaliel again. He says, yeah, maybe something will come of this. Let's wait and see. We never hear about Gamaliel again because of this lukewarm, mediocre, let's see what happens type of person. Saul, the student, overtakes the master because he's utterly zealous for God. And even before his conversion, and even more so afterwards, he gives everything to follow Jesus and to live a God-glorifying life. And I love how this passage ends with this Jesus-murder-breathing Saul proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. Contact, con- uh, contact, conviction, and conversion immediately and finally lead us into this fourth C, which isn't clearly stipulated, but I think is lived out. Communion. Communion. Like Saul, those of us who've been in contact with Jesus. We've experienced this daily closeness that brings us day by day to a place of conviction for our sins before this beautiful, holy, loving God. And we want to live our lives for Him and we want to put down things that hold us back from knowing Him more closely, loving Him more dearly. And we want to live in the newness of converted lives that desire to follow Jesus above all else. And Jesus gives us the gift of communion. A gift that that we can be with Him in this life and when we close our eyes in this life for eternity in the next life. God first through communion with us, literally, Community, union, communion. We're invited together to be with Him. And we're invited and empowered by the Holy Spirit to commune with Jesus' life and His death, His burial, His resurrection, and His ascension into glory. That's the promise that we can commune with Him in those things. We're invited and empowered to commune with Jesus' people in the church. We're invited and empowered to commune with Jesus' mission. To preach, yeah, sure. But also to live out at every opportunity the message and the gospel of Jesus. The good news of Jesus. We're invited and empowered to leave this lukewarm, Gamaliel-like followership of Jesus behind and commune with him with zeal and passion to see the things that Jesus loves and is passionate about happen as he works to make all things new. We get to co-labor with him on that great mission. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.